The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us to discuss day three of the January 6th Select Committee hearings is Professor Barbara McQuaid at the University of Michigan Law School. And Barbara, in the first hour, I was playing a lot of the audio from yesterday's hearings. And at the end of the hour, I sort of like summed up what I think the committee is trying to tell us. And I just can't even imagine that the set of facts, as I said them, is like a thing that has happened. Like the president sent a mob um, that violently attacked the Capitol while the vice president was inside. And he was a window pane away from that mob and in physical danger. And the vi- and the president didn't do anything about it. Um, and, you know, is quoted as saying he deserved it. I mean, I just think that we're like unprecedented doesn't really work anymore to describe where we're at but Barbara what were your sort of top line takeaways from day three yeah thanks Erlina I I think you're right it really is horrifying to put these pieces together you know I think for those of us who've watched this closely I know you have I have I'm sure many of your listeners have I expected to kind of know all the stories Mm -hmm. and just kind of see the highlights you know in in a way that would be compelling to the American people. But actually, it's been so much worse than previously reported. Um, the, the details on the timing is really incredible. And the magnitude of um, the, the advice that Donald Trump was getting that this was wrong. And, and, and not only because the premise was fraudulent, there was no there there, as Mark Meadows said, he didn't actually win the election. Uh, you know, Joe Biden won it fair and square. There was no election fraud, all of that. But that this legal theory was complete garbage. Uh, I, I have worried that in a criminal case, he would say, well, I was getting competing legal advice from different people. Reasonable minds can disagree. I'm entitled to pursue any legal theory, even those that might sound a bit aggressive. And that's what I did here. But it was very clear based on what we heard yesterday that you know all of his most trusted advisors were telling him, this is an absolute non-starter. It's absurd. It's nonsense. It was really just Eastman saying that he could do this. And even Eastman ultimately conceded <laughs> that, that this was fab, you know, fabrication. It was, it was he, he said he predicted he would lose 9-0 in the Supreme Court. So I think that that piece of it, that defense has, has really dropped away in a way I did not anticipate. And then as to the timing, and as you mentioned, the mob got within 40 feet of Mike Pence, a window pane away, as you put it, which is amazing. Um, I, again, I've always thought that Trump was, you know, kind of irresponsible in sort of lighting the fuse uh, at the ellipse. And he, I think all, you know, he wanted the crowd to go down there and get a little loud and maybe persuade some members of Congress that they ought to step back and, and take them seriously. But what we heard yesterday was absolutely chilling. If you look at the timing, and they did a very masterful job of this, 
of showing that Tom, Donald Trump sent a tweet at 2.24 p.m. Mm-hmm. that really raised the stakes for Pence, that you know Pence lacked the courage, he could do this, our constitution requires it, and it's Pence, it's all Pence. And then we see you know, people at the scene reading it and being motivated by it um, and, and chanting, hang Mike Pence. I mean, even after he knew the Capitol had been breached and there were people inside who were very angry, um, he kind of sicked the crowd on Mike Pence in particular. And I, I think you might even be getting, I don't know that you're there yet, but getting it to the point of, you know, intentionally using the mob to attack Mike Pence, at least he was extremely reckless in doing so. Um, and, and, and that is an incredibly dangerous, it's beyond dangerous, it's beyond um, irresponsible. I, I mean, I think we're, we're now into territory of, of evil. It was- yeah. It was really powerful the way they put that together. I, I was trying to come up with words in the first oh, yeah, hour know, to describe right? I know, it. I was just, there, so Mary Trump in her in her book, her first book, she has this quote that I as soon as I read it, it like it was chilled down my spine and I wrote it down and I memorized it and I repeat it often. And it's this quote and it says, if Donald Trump in any way can profit from your death, he will facilitate it and then he wow. will ignore the fact that you died. Oh that's gosh. Quote. so wow so, yeah i know well <laughs> i know yeah kind of fits right yeah i know I, and and so when we think about the facts as they the committee lay them out i think about that quote because you know there were there, all, all the pieces of that quote apply to this conduct is it in any way i mean i want to before we even get into like whether garland will charge all of those questions about the president specifically say the president is a man and like a regular person, you or me, and he engages in this conduct, not with a vice president, but like someone, another person. And, you know, he incites a mob, he sends the mob, um, he's, you know, called the guy a wimp and other other terms earlier that day. Um, he knows the mob is going to attack. He knows the mob is going to be violent. He finds out the mob is there. He doesn't do anything about it. I mean, assuming... I guess in this set of facts that the person has some sort of obligation to intervene because they have some sort of power, right? The president has the power to stop them up. Yes. Right. Um, You know, what obligation does he have to, to intervene, to make sure the mob doesn't get to Mike Pence? Because I feel like when we talk about it in the context of president Trump, we miss the fact that like a regular person, you know, may be criminally liable for conduct that, similar to this (laughs) like this just sounds crimey to me yeah and you know it's so absurd that it's hard to get our minds around it but this is this really sounds like the kind of crazy hypotheticals we talk about in law school that's what i'm saying Um, like that's that's what my brain is doing like this is definitely a law school exam the insurrection is a a law school exam i can't wait for the fact pattern and then it's going to say discuss yeah i've I've already (laughs) tested on it twice and i but but I couldn't imagine this, this, this scenario. And you raise a really interesting question. And I think the way you would analyze it is, is something like this. It reminds me a lot of the swatting cases. Mm. And by swatting cases, what I mean is like, you're my enemy. I'm really mad at you. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to call the police and I'm going to say, you are in your home and you are threatening to kill people and you're very dangerous and you're waving a gun around right now and you're menacing people. And uh, you better send the SWAT team in. And they do, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're told that, that life is in danger. And so the SWAT team shows up. And then, you know, when the person comes out, 
um, if, especially if they have a, they get shot. Mm-hmm. And what's the responsibility of the person who made that initial call? Um, there is case law that says that person can be guilty of, of a homicide. Now, it's probably at a level of recklessness as mm-hmm. opposed to intent to kill, but uh, that is sufficient for manslaughter. That I used this uh, instrument, this intermediary, which is a person, whether it's a mob or the police or someone else, I set them off to accomplish my dirty deed. Now, was I certain it would happen? Not really. But did I create a risk where I knew it was a very dangerous situation and allowed that to happen anyway through my intentional conduct? I think the answer here is yes. Now, with a president, again, now we're going back into that different category. There are some people who have not only um, a duty to avoid doing bad things, but they also have a duty of um, uh, to, to do good things for people. You know, if you're a parent, you have a, an affirmative obligation to take care of your child and make sure they don't, you know, you can't leave them for dead if your child is sick or your spouse. Uh, if they are on death's door and you know that, you have a responsibility to go get them medical help. Um, the captain of a ship, um, teachers in a school, responsibility mm-hmm. to their students. President Trump has a responsibility because he can, because he has the power uh, to stop people from doing things. Now that begins to cross into this federal land. And mm-hmm. so I think that becomes uh, very complicated because there's not a federal statute for you know ordinary manslaughter. But there is this thing called the Assimilated Crimes Act, which says that if you commit a federal offense, a, a state offense on federal property, you can be start, charged with a state crime. And so I could actually imagine something like the District of Columbia charging him with a manslaughter for number one, setting the mob, you know, as Liz mm-hmm. Cheney said, summoning and assembling the mob and lighting the fuse. Um, and then in addition, it's even worse for him because right. he has the power to stop them by sending a tweet um, or sending in the National Guard or whatever it is. And he doesn't. In fact, how about that testimony yesterday? How devastating was this? Um, did, did Donald Trump ever call Mike Pence to ask about his safety? Answer, no. Right, <laughs> oh, right. Ooh, that I goes mean, back to the Mary Trump and ignore right. your death. Yeah, that, exactly. <laughs> ignore the fact that you died. I mean, it, it was so chilling to, to hear that. And then also to see the photographs from the National Archives and John Carl's reporting um, that showed, you know, just how close the vice president was, that uh, Karen Pence closing the curtain and the mob is on the other side. Yeah. I mean, that was yeah. all new, all new to us. We had yeah. not known any of that before. We knew the vice president you know, had reportedly not wanted to get into the car <laughs> to leave yeah. because he was feeling a little bit uncertain about his yep. safety in the car. Um, the other questions I have relate to what we were talking about last week, which were the two federal statutes that do apply to some of the evidence we've seen so far, which is 1512 and 371. And one of the things we talked about is, um, or two, two, of the, two of the fact patterns we talked about that apply are sort of like the effort to um, delay an official proceeding um, and then also, you know, uh, the insurrection piece itself, right? So, like, we we were talking about whether or not you have to tie Trump to the violence, but we were also talking about how you may not have to do that. You may just have to show that, like, he intentionally wanted to delay that official proceeding from going forward in the first place. Is the Mike Pence pressure campaign, the fact that he knew that it was illegal 
you know, it through the testimony that we heard that he was told repeatedly it was not lawful. Is that a separate crime in and of itself that demonstrates he was trying to delay the certification through unlawful means? Is that a separate line of inquiry altogether? You know, the way I would structure this, Erlina, and again, you know, you'd have to look at all the evidence. You'd have to make sure you have, you know, evidence of intent and that you don't have evidence that's exonerating. But the way to answer your question, and based on what we heard yesterday, the way I would structure this is, I think there are actually three potential crimes here. One is this overarching conspiracy to defraud the United States. That is a crime if you have a fraudulent intent and you do something to obstruct an official function of government. And here, that official function would be the lawful um, transfer of presidential power. And that umbrella could encompass everything like the alternate slates of electors and the efforts with Georgia, with the call to Brad Raffensperger and the Pence pressure, you know, the whole thing could, could come in as, as evidence there. And I would do that so that a jury could appreciate the scope of all the different uh, threads of this. Um, but then the more narrow one is the one you're asking about now, I think, which is um, con conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Mm -hmm. And that is, if you if you simply delay an official proceeding like this congressional session to certify the president, um, or, or you do anything to interfere with it or obstruct it, that is a crime. And so I think these efforts toward Mike Pence are an effort to remember. Part of it was to adjourn it for ten days to give right. states a chance. That alone, that's pretty easy, right there. Um, just, just the and, and it's in violation of the statute by by the way, which says once you start it, you can't stop it, and the longest recess you can take is five days. Um, because they want that to, to get done. Um, so that's the easiest, narrowest way to do it. But then I think if you also say, and he wanted him to, you know, throw out certain uh, states electors, that's another way that he was obstructing or interfering with it. Um, and then the third crime that I don't know is whether it's still, uh, of, I still don't think it's quite been tied up, is Trump um, setting them up, which I would charge a seditious conspiracy. That requires an agreement, conspiracy, that someone in the group will use force mm -hmm. to oppose the United States government. That is what we've seen charged against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers groups so far, because they did use force and it was organized and it was planned. They went in in these stacks and they had their strategy and they met you know, the night before. And well, they assembled there. So they've been charged with seditious conspiracy. And the question is, can you tie those groups to uh, Trump or anyone in his, uh, his inner circle? And it, we're not there yet, but one thing that we do know is that three of those defendants are cooperating. And at least one of them, a man named Joshua James, was seen with Roger Stone on January 5th and 6th, driving him around in a golf cart, providing quote unquote security. And so that is an interesting tie, especially the fact that that guy's cooperating. And yeah. so if you could say that, oh yeah, the, 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 the Willard Hotel guys, part of the strategy was get the mob riled up and get them into that building so that they shut that thing down and you can tie that to Trump. Ooh, that's, that's like the home run ball. I don't know if you need it. You know, the thing they did with Pence alone is enough. The other pieces of the strategy are enough for a, a bigger conspiracy. Uh, this one is so awful because it's, it's deadly. Um, if you can tie Trump to that, then you could charge him with seditious conspiracy, which is, by the way, Zerlina, many people say, why isn't he charged with treason? And let me just say this. Treason is not available here because the treason statute, as defined by Congress, mm -hmm. requires that we be in a declared war with a foreign ah. nation um, and, and to provide aid and comfort to the enemy in a time of declared war. But this seditious conspiracy is um, this, the closest thing we have to treason during peacetime because it does require using force 
against the authority of the United States. I mean, I, I just can't even believe we're, we're laying this out like this because it's like, what a so, time. Um, what is the likelihood? I mean, I think the question everybody's asking is Merrick Garland, you know, came in front of a microphone, thank, thankfully, and said, we're watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm glad he did. The Department of Justice um, has requested documents and transcripts from the committee officially. Um, that doesn't mean anything in terms of the charging. It just means that they 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 are officially requesting this this evidence and testimony. And I I wonder how much the committee is going to give them now, um, uh, as opposed to at the end of the proceedings. But we'll see how that develops. In terms of the calculation here, I was talking earlier in the show about how, you know, most of the analysis is like Merrick Garland you know, is going to have to make has a tough call here. It's a tough call for him because of the politics. It, it, it will appear political. It will be attacked as political if he charges Trump. Like, is that a consideration of Merrick Garland? Isn't the Department of Justice supposed to be independent? I know that we just lived through Donald Trump's presidency, but I thought that Merrick Garland is supposed to be making this decision based on the evidence, not the politics of it. Um, maybe that's naive of me, though. No, I, I think you raise a really good point because there is a provision in the justice manual, and that's like the, the policy manual for all the federal prosecutors. It's enormous. It has all kinds of things that prosecutors are supposed to think about in making charging decisions. And there is one particular provision that says that um, partisan politics should not uh, you know, dictate charging decisions. You shouldn't charge someone because of their political affiliation or their political views uh, or the political party. And that's very good. But it, what it doesn't say, and I think it means, it doesn't mean you don't charge somebody also just because they're in a particular political party, right? And I think the concern, um, maybe maybe up until now, has been that one of the reasons Merrick Garland was selected to be the attorney general is because he would restore some public confidence to the Justice Department that it's not a political arm of the federal government, you know, the way um, we saw in the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. I think what Jeff Sessions did and what William Barr did, even worse, really did uh, scream of politics. And I think it undermined public confidence in the Justice Department as an independent uh, entity. And so I think Merrick Garland's job is it was very much to restore that that trust, which means, you know, you don't go after political enemies. But it can also cannot mean that you uh, are hands off on anyone who was committed a serious crime just because of their political affiliation. You know, when I was U.S. attorney in Detroit, we prosecuted people who were Republicans and Democrats. And whenever we did, I got heat from that that party that, oh, mm-hmm. it's just because, you know, you hate Republicans or you hate Democrats. Or, nope, it's because of this conduct. Look, right. Would you look at what this person did? And that's what it was all about. And so I think that Merrick Garland cannot shy away from his responsibility just out of fear that it's going to be um, criticized as political. It will be criticized as political, no doubt. They're already doing that. Um, but as Janet Reno used to say uh, when she was the attorney general in the Clinton administration, you know, I'm going to be damned if I do this thing or I'll be mm-hmm. damned if I don't. So I might as well just do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the fact that the pre- I mean, the president yeah. put the vice president's life in danger. Like that fact alone, regardless mm-hmm. of all the other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. That should be enough for prosecutors yep. to seriously look at all of the conduct that happened yep. here, because that is it's so chilling. Yeah. Um, and it, it's also we're still processing it because a lot of it is still new. We knew some of this, but we didn't know all of it. And the way that they're putting the story together, it really is making it clear, um, you know, that the president 
woke up on January 6th with no intention to um for allowing that certification to proceed. Like his goal that day, his to-do list was like stop the certification. Um in terms of John Eastman, so we we heard a lot of testimony from a lot of conservatives yesterday, Judge Ludig, um a very prominent conservative, um John Eastman, I believe clerk for him and also Clarence Thomas. Um but John Eastman is in an email asking for a pardon, which I really think it was poor poor form. Like don't ask for a pardon in an email like maybe like a text like maybe that'd be harder to find but like email i mean like going back to like when i was a paralegal 15 years ago i was looking at emails don't put it in an email that email will be never deleted never deleted they're never ever deleted um so what is the significance of john eastman's conduct here as as we sort of put him into this story he's obviously a lawyer that shows up with this plan to um, overturn the election using fake electors. So help us understand the John Eastman plan, the John Eastman memo, and like how does he show up here as a character in this story at where it ends where he's asking for a pardon? <laughs> yeah, so he's, as you say, this conservative lawyer who he has some pretty, a pretty good pedigree, having clerked for these prominent judges. Um, and he comes up with this cockamamie theory that um, in, it, it violates the Electoral Count Act, which he concedes and he says, well, I, I'm pretty sure that's unconstitutional anyway. That's not how it works. <laughs> if there's a statute on the books, you have to comply with the statute, but he doesn't let that stop him. And so he's got kind of uh, a couple of different tracks here. What he recommends is that, well, hey, our guy, Mike Pence, is the one who counts the votes. Did anybody notice that? And so maybe we can use him to our advantage. So they have a couple different theories there. And so part of it is they're going to get these alternate slates of electors cooked up in states that were swing states, ultimately won by Joe Biden. And then when he gets these two sets, he's going to say, oh, guess what, folks? Uh, Arizona and Michigan and all these other states. Turns out we have alternate slates of electors. So there's some confusion in these states. Um, we aren't going to be able to count these votes. We are going to throw them out. We're not going to count Arizona or Michigan or Georgia. You know, he's got six states, I think. And lo and behold, when you throw those out, guess who wins, everyone? Bravo, dear leader, has been reelected. And then even in Eastman's memo, he says, of course, the crowd will howl at this point. So um, we try this route. And if there's too much pushback, then we'll do this second plan B, which is Pence says, OK, OK, everybody, have it your way. Instead, here's what we'll do will delay for a couple weeks and we'll send these slates back to the states and we'll let their legislatures sort out what they want to do about this because my gosh what are we going to do we got two slates of electors we can't possibly decide which one's the real one and which one's not um and then in the meantime they had this you know this is where jeffrey clark came in at doj mm -hmm. persuading these state legislatures republican controlled like you know michigan's a great example hey michigan legislature um you know, the, the statute says that if an election fails in your state, like, you know, there was a hurricane that day and so nobody could vote. If your election fails, then the legislature is allowed to decide who gets all your electoral votes so that you don't get squeezed out and, and you don't get any say whatsoever in the presidency. And so we'll just say your election failed because, you know, you got these two slates who, who can figure out which one's the real one. And then legislature, you, all of you Republicans in the state legislature, you will decide and, you know, you pick who you think's best now. 
And, you know, they're going to pick the Republican. Um, I note that in Michigan, I paid closer attention to this just because it's my home state right. and it's newsworthy. Um, the heads of the state legislature, uh, Mike Cherkey and Lee Chaffin, were summoned to the White House during this period. And they went. And when they came back, they were asked, what did you talk about? And, uh, uh, and, you know, we told them about COVID is really bad right now in our state. They testified before the committee. I don't know what they said, but um, I, you know, that was part of the scheme too. And so that was, um, you know, that was plan B. Those are, and so they went to Mike Pence and said, you know, you should do this thing. And every other lawyer and every other person who read this says, this is, girl, you know, you can't do this. Pence's lawyers looked at it and said, absolutely not. Uh, Judge Ludig, who was, you know, a yeah. trusted advisor, looked at this and said, this will, this, you know, he had a really powerful quote yesterday. This will result in a revolution and a constitutional crisis this is the first one we've had since the Civil War. I would lay it on my body across the road before I would let you sign this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely not. And so Eastman, um, you know, let's do this, Mike Pence. And then when it doesn't happen and he sees the attack, they, they, do they stop yet? No. What they say is um, one of Mike Pence's guys says, you know, texts him or emails him during the insurrection and says, this is what you unleashed. And he writes back, you know, it's not too late. We could still do this. We could reconvene and we should, you know, keep trying. And they say, you're crazy. And it's only after that that he says, huh, I might be into some trouble here. And so he asks, you know, for how do I get, line up for a pardon? He asks for a pardon. And Zerlina, as you know, in the law, we refer to that kind of evidence as consciousness of guilt. Yes. <laughs> uh, innocent people don't ask for pardons. You know, people no. give legal advice all the time that turns out to be incorrect. And they say, I'm sorry. You know, we gambled, we took a try and turns out to, they don't ask for pardons. <laughs> no, that I mean, I, I feel like that might be the first can I have a pardon email I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, I got to be honest. Same. I think I mean, most people would know not to write it in an email, but also <laughs> I feel like it is unprecedented in so many ways um, to have somebody asking for a pardon. Um, after an insurrection at the Capitol where the president sent a mob and put the vice president's life in danger. I mean, this is this is more crazy than the plot of, you know, um, designated survivor. I mean, it really is. Yeah. It really, really well, is. I know if you, some if you wrote this in a movie, people would say, oh, this is too far-fetched. No, Come it on. would be completely far-fetched. Um, mm. And, you know, again, the president we're talking about was a reality star um, before he was president. Okay. I'm just going to take a deep breath as we process everything we've just learned. Thank you, Barbara McQuaid, professor of law at the University of Michigan, and um, help, just our helper in unpacking all of this, because it's a lot, but it's, it's helpful to have, I have my list of three crimes. I'm going to refer back to it always, and my, my numbered statutes, because this, I can't believe we're talking about this in this, in this yeah. way, but... This is where we are. Um, thank you so much for being here as always. Please stay safe. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.